Pope Francis's health lands him in the hospital this week. A Vatican cardinal reaffirms the church's stance on Freemasonry, and an anonymous cardinal speaks out on the Francis pontificate. The papal posse, Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal, are here with analysis. And it's been 20 years since Mel Gibson's epic blockbuster, The Passion of the Christ, hit theaters. We'll commemorate the occasion with some classic World Over interviews with Mel Gibson and Jim Caviezel. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an ex post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. First, some sad news to report. Makana Sinise, or Mac, the beloved son of actor and philanthropist Gary Sinise, died January 5th at the age of 33 after a bout with a rare form of cancer. Mac was an accomplished musician and composer, even playing drums for, from time to time in his father's Lieutenant Dan band. Gary Sinise just announced the passing of his son, and I spoke to him not too long ago when a friend rediscovered Mac Sinise's compositions and encouraged him to record them. For Mac, it became a life-giving journey, as his dad told me recently on Father. Tell me why that moment was so important to Mac. He started this song many years ago. Mac is a composer and musician. He went to USC Music School many years ago, and past several years he's been dealing with uh, some very serious health challenges. And he was a drummer and used to play, and he can't do that anymore and kind of put that aside. And then he started listening to some old music that he had written back in school, and he connected with an old college friend, uh, Oliver Schnee. They went to college together, and he played it for Oliver, who is also a composer and mu musician. Hmm. Oliver fell in love with it, and they went to work on it to finish it. Mac and his mother, Moira, were both diagnosed with cancer in 2018. Moira's breast cancer is in remission. Sadly, Mac lost his struggle after battling his cancer for five years. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and please keep Mac and the entire Sinise family in your prayers. And Pope Francis makes a hospital visit this week after the Vatican announces he has a mild flu. A high-profile blessing of a same-sex couple occurs in Uruguay, and a Vatican cardinal now reaffirms church teaching on Freemasonry. Joining me with analysis of these stories and more is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of thecatholicthing.org, Robert Royal, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Gentlemen, Pope Francis's health has been a major focus of the week, with the Holy See Press Office stating that the 87-year-old Pope had a mild flu. On Wednesday, the Pope attended his Wednesday audience, 
with his remarks read by an aide. And afterward, he was taken for an unannounced hospital visit for diagnostic tests and possibly a CT scan. Now, Father, this is another in a series of health issues Pope Francis has faced of late. I mean, he's been hospitalized three times in the last couple of years, most recently in June for a hernia. Um, Bob, let me start with you. How serious do you think this is? And what are you hearing from sources in Rome? Well, look, an 86-, 87-year-old man having a series of health, uh, I think we have to say crises like this, because when you can't speak and you have to have a, a diagnosis done uh, and testing at his age, none of this is possibly good. And there, as you rightly say, there's been a lot of it. And it seems curious to me, because we've seen this a couple of times, when he seems to have what they call a lung infection, but then he's immediately involved kissing babies, you know, hugging people, shaking hands and whatnot. And it doesn't seem like that's what you do when you have an infectious disease or at least potentially an, an infectious disease. Now, he went to the Jamelli Hospital. They did whatever ever tests and di diagnostics they needed to do. He was immediately back. So for now, it seems like things seem to be stable. But these are signs that, you know, something is going on and maybe something more than we're being told. Father, uh, your thoughts on this and the way the Vatican handles this. This was not pre-announced that he was going to the Jamelli Clinic. Maybe they didn't know and he just felt so bad they had to take him. Yes. Well, this reminds us of when he was hospitalized following a Sunday Angelus, uh, where he never spoke. In fact, he was going to go into the hospital and then he needed surgery. So I think the pope is a private person. He doesn't like to discuss his medical condition. I'll note that today, Thursday, uh, he had an audience with the superior of the fraternity of St. Peter. Then that audience lasted 25 minutes. So I think he's improved uh, over what his condition was just a few days ago. But as Bob says, you know, anything involving the lungs is serious when you're 87 years old. So I'm praying for the Pope, and I pray uh, that this uh, crisis pass, which seems to be the case if he's back at his uh, normal duties today. Hmm. Conclave talk always ramps up when any pope falls ill. And today, an anonymous cardinal has written a memo to his brother electors. In the memo, he asserts that Francis has been, quote, vindictive, intolerant, ambiguous on faith and morals. And then he goes on to outline what should be the priorities of the next pontificate. It is signed, interestingly, Demos II, entitled profile of the next pope. It's even been shared on social media by uh, Cardinal Joseph Zen and others. Father, that non de plume, Demos, was used by Cardinal Pell in a memo attributed to him uh, just prior to his death. That missive also outlined priorities for the next conclave. Your thoughts on this? Well, um, it's normal in... Uh you know, in the life of the church when there are disagreements that people were going to air them. Now, in this case, since it's done anonymously, uh, and as in the memo itself, it says that criticism is not welcome in the Vatican. And, uh, you know, I have to say, we've had a couple of cases where people were, you know, told they can't live uh, in their diocese, they can't live in Rome. Uh, Cardinal Burke said to say his salary was cut off after the Pope uh, decided that he was being a, a cause of disunity in the church, which I think is not correct. So, yeah, what we're facing here is uh, a desire on the part of the author of this document and any of those people who agree with it with a chance to say, what is the current situation 
And how should we approach uh, when the next conclave comes up? What do we need to do? Do we need a continuation or do we need uh, a change of orientation, a change of direction in the Holy See? It's completely fair to discuss these things. It's no lack of respect because, you know, all of us are headed to the grave. And, uh, you know, in the, in the Catholic Church, we pray for the Pope and we pray for his successor. And to air grievances, in my opinion, is truly an act of charity rather than keep them under the table as grumblings. Mm. Bob, what do you make of the memo and the way in which it was issued? Look, it really does echo what Cardinal Pell had written. Um, but what does it mean that this one is also anonymous? What does it say about the nature of synodality and the so-called collaborative dialogue in Rome? Well, uh, look, it's clear that somebody, more and perhaps more than one somebody, fears that there could be a very serious backlash if, if his identity was, was revealed. It's a very, very well-written document. I mean, we, we need to say that. There's not a, an excess word in it. It's very direct and it's very clear about what, what is needed. Um, there's been a lot of speculation of who could have written such a thing. I mean, I kind of think it sounds a little bit like Cardinal Zen. But uh, Cardinal Zen is such an outspoken person. I, I don't know that he would hide his identity, although maybe there's some, some value in that. But it really puts on the table the fact that we really need a serious change of direction over what's been going on in the past 10 years, which has been an, an effort to reach out to the contemporary world and it's just instead of bringing people into the church, it's confused people inside of the church. And you may both remember when we covered the, the conclave that elected Francis, I was saying that what we needed was a pope who was going to pastorally implement what we had gotten from John Paul II and from Benedict. We had great ideas, but we hadn't implemented them at the parish level. I, I debated with people at, at the time that thought that, well, that, that kind of culture war was not working. Well, we've now tried this softer you know, inviting people in approach. And that seems not only to not attract the church, but it's caused tr trouble in the world. So thank God for whoever decided to put this out. Um, we'll see what kind of effect that it has. But it's good that at least it came out, even if it had to be done uh, anonymously. Hmm. Moving on, African Cardinal Robert Sarah was speaking at the Catholic University in Nairobi, and he was reacting to the African bishop's response to that Vatican directive on blessing of couples in irregular relationships, fiducia supplicans. He said, I think fiducia supplicans has a response from the African bishops very clear. It was, I was very proud to hear the African bishops rejecting completely this text. Father, defiance to this directive on blessings of same-sex couples and couples in irregular situations it seems to have no sign of stopping. How significant is it that Cardinal Sarah openly support his brother bishops here? Well, this is another reason to praise Cardinal Sarah because he's a no-nonsense guy. He speaks the truth. He understands the situation in the world. He's very attuned to what's happening in the life of the church. And uh, as an African uh, whose parents were converted from paganism, uh, he himself, in his own life, embodies what it means to embrace Christianity uh, and to try to live the fullness of that faith by accepting the doctrines of the church. So I praise him. You know, the African bishops have given a lesson, I think, to the bishops in Europe and America and elsewhere uh, that we do not agree 
to anything that contradicts revelation, the Word of God, the natural law, the teaching of the church. And it's manifest to me and to them and to so many of us. If you say that two people who engage in immoral behavior deserve a blessing as a couple, that you are contradicting the Catholic faith. And that's simply what Cardinal Sarah is saying. Bob, we're hearing from the Vatican and other cardinals, such as McElroy in San Diego, rather condescendingly, it seems, that African resistance to this document is merely cultural or unique to that continent. McElroy is actually calling the opposition neo-colonialism. Your thoughts? Yeah, he's also said that this, this is evidence of decentralization in the church, how different parts of the world can have different approaches to, to, to things. Look, I, I don't know how we can call ourselves Catholic, which means a universal church, that God's revelation is the revelation of the truth for all people in every culture, no matter what age they are living in, and ours included. When, when you talk about these divisions as if it's decentralization and we can tolerate uh, one thing happening in Africa, another thing happening in, in Germany, and et cetera, et cetera, this is not decentralization. This is division. Let's just say this frankly. And as we have on the highest authority, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This is not a trivial issue. The question of, of homosexuality goes to the nature of human beings, and the nature of human beings reflects who God is and who he created us to be. So we can try to paper this over all we want with this. It's a cultural difference, but the culture is the Catholic culture. It's the Catholic culture that is meant to be the same for everyone on earth. So other cardinals can make claims. Mostly people in the United States and, and Europe are the ones who are going to be making these dissenting kind of claims. And even at the Vatican, I don't think that their attempt to establish this by a diktat is going to prevail over what has been the universal teaching from the very beginning of Catholicism. Well, in other fallout from this fiducia document, a bishop in Uruguay has issued a statement clarifying the nature of a blessing given to a celebrity same-sex couple there shortly after their civil marriage. The bishop says the blessing was authorized by the local nunciature and was fully in line with the new Vatican document permitting these blessings. Now, Father, what are the implications of this and of the nuncio, the Pope's representative there, not only weighing in but authorizing this blessing? Well, uh, if you've seen the film of the blessing, you know how disgraceful it is. And this is the fruit of fiducia supplicans. We have to make no mistake. Uh, two people who entered into a so-called civil marriage, two men, and thereby they reject Catholic teaching, which says that only marriage consists of a union of a man and a woman. So two men who claim to be married are in violation of their uh, obligation to profess the Catholic faith in its fullness. Then you see the priest blessing them. These people have pledged to commit mortal sin with each other. And the priest is blessing them and uttering all the same kind of thoughts that happens when a priest blesses a couple at marriage. Uh, this is, you know, the image prevails over the explanation. Uh, they try to explain we're blessing the couple, not the union. That's silliness. And it's, it's really insulting to people to claim that as a rational explanation of what's going on here. We know what's going on here. They're trying to legitimize the homosexual lifestyle and in doing so, they hope to get past, as they would view, a history of discrimination against people who engage in immorality. There's no discrimination when you teach God's truth. 
Let's just say that quite clearly. So th this is a disgraceful uh, uh, thing that happened in Uruguay. Sad to say something similar happened in Spain. It's just going to go all over the globe. Bob was right. A universal church, universal truth has to have universal practice. And this kind of stuff, this is why the church is really in serious crisis. Uh, Bob, given the resistance we are seeing to this document and these examples of priests and bishops uh, endorsing and finding ways to express this fiducia document in their parishes, in their communities, not to mention Father James Martin, who continues to post his blessings, are we on a collision course here to schism? Is that where this is headed? When you have such hardened lines, the Africans on one side, traditionalists on one side, and then, uh, you know, the, the, the other side who are moving with the Vatican on this. Yeah, look, the, the very people who quote fiducia supplicans don't follow it. You know, these, these blessings, these so-called blessings, are supposed to be private. They're not supposed to be formal. Uh, in the case of Uruguay, if I have this right, these two people were well-known celebrities. So, you know, the fact that this was going to take place in a church or a chapel was intended to project a, a certain message. Even if, you know, what, what they've been trying to do with the actual document is say, well, the words affirm the traditional doctrine, but we've got this development that's going to allow us to do something else. This, this can't help but create a, a clash between two things. And I think we're going to see, I think Father's exactly right, it's not like this is the end, that we've seen, oh, no, this was an abuse because two very public persons announced this and then it sends out the, the message that the church is now along this sort of thing. This is going to happen again and again. And the people who are going to be most under the pressure, by the way, are parish priests who want to stand up for the, the teaching and maybe don't have a bishop like the, the the African bishop. So they have a bishop who doesn't want to touch yeah. a, a very complicated celebrity situation. So, look, I, I don't know whether, whether it will end in schism, but the very way that the, the document was set up can't help but, but create these divisions, which who knows where they will end. Yeah. Well, Father, before I, I, I end this topic, uh, there was a, a release by the German Bishops' Conference, the official German Bishops' Conference, uh, released a piece essentially saying they were quoting the Moscow patriarch who has taken umbrage with this uh, document from the Vatican and saying it's immoral. And the, the spin from the German bishops was that those who are opposed to these blessings are getting support from Moscow and the Russians. <laughs> your, your take on kind of the political overlay of this as it continues to progress. Uh, you know, let's not make this into an issue of uh, Russian nationalism. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, Cardinal Sarah and Orthodox bishops all agree on one thing. Sodomy is immoral. We don't bless couples who engage in sodomy. It's as simple as that. We love those people who do that, and we call on them to repent and to leave that sinful lifestyle. That's the Christian message. This other thing that we're doing now with Fiducia is disgraceful. It makes the church look ridiculous. And it's very clear. The people who want to do this, as Bob said, they're just going to keep going, and it, or they're going to do this. They say, oh, the nuncio in Uruguay said this is fine. Cardinal Fernandez thinks this is great. Of course this is going to cause problems in the life of the church that aren't going away. This is why that memo we talked about earlier is so important. Do we want continuity with chaos, or do we want the church's life to be renewed 
by, by renewed attention to the true magisterium taught by John Paul II and Benedict, which never, ever included the blessing of homosexual couples. Gentlemen, the Vatican's dicastery for promoting integral human development has announced a theme for the 110th World Day of Migrants and Refugees. That theme, which will be celebrated on Sunday, the 29th, is God Walks with His People. And the Vatican also released a series of images, which we'll put on screen, with Pope Francis interacting with migrants and refugees. Bob, what is the messaging meant to convey here? on a prudential matter like migration and refugees, which, according to church teaching, governments are entitled to deal with as they see fit. But what's happening here? Yeah, I think this is just one of the main themes that the pope, from the very first—remember, his first trip as pope was to Lampedusa, which is an island very close mm-hmm. to North Africa— he, he seems to regard this as the most, along with climate, as the most important human question at this moment in history. And it, it's clear to me, if we just want to begin with the politics, that both in Europe and, as we know, in the United States, this, this immigration question is front and center, and there is a strong popular reaction against these massive numbers of people who are arriving um, from the developing world. You know, the, the, one of the first things the Pope did was put up a, a, a group statue in St. Peter's Square of people who are migrants. If you go into St. Peter's Square to the left-hand side, there's mm-hmm. this sort of dark thing that's a very striking statue. But to put that in St. Peter's Square as if it's somehow central to Catholicism, it just seems to me to be inappropriate. For them to, mm-hmm. to pro- proclaim this, good. It's, it's good to think that, that God is with people who are, are traveling and, and are exiled or have to leave their own country. But, man, this is not going to make—it's uh, not going to be very successful in terms of how um, uh, nations politically and, and their peoples are going to respond to such a call. Father, the Vatican says these images highlight migration and fraternity. What do you think these images convey, given that many nations, including our own and, as Bob said, are grappling with uh, immigration and and how to handle a border crisis? Yeah, no, I think they're an endorsement of uh, what's happening in the world right now, which is that people are entering countries illegally and, uh, you know, governments in Europe are then receiving them and you know, offering them hospitality, housing, and and a payment for food and all the rest. So it basically comes down to don't turn away those who come to your shores. The problem with that, Bob just pointed out, I don't need to repeat it. Uh, you know, the idea that in the United States, uh, during the Biden presidency, we've had more than 7 million people enter the country illegally, uh, this is astounding. Uh, it's It needs to be discussed and decided democratically by the American people, but um, yeah, I, as Bob, as you said, Raymond, governments have the right to regulate who comes into their countries, mm-hmm. and that's important because you don't want social dislocation, or you don't want the disappearance of your democracy. If you know you had such a group of people who wanted to, you know, get rid of democracy and decide to be governed otherwise. Let me move on to other topics. After apparently opening a door to Freemasonry, in a February 24th interview with Vatican media outlets, Bishop Antonio Stagliano appeared to cut short any speculation that the Vatican's position on Freemasonry might be open to dialogue. He said, the Masonic heresy is one which is fundamentally aligned with the Arian heresy. At bottom, 
It was Arius who imagined that Jesus was the great architect of the universe, denying the divinity of Christ. Gents, uh, there seems to be some doublespeak here. Astagliano was reportedly in attendance at that February 16th meeting with the Masons and Vatican representatives. Father, what should we make of that remark? Is the Vatican trying to walk back the efforts to create dialogue with Freemasonry because of the global outrage over it? I think there is damage control going on here because this is, you know, unexpected. Uh, the Holy See itself, in uh, last November, Cardinal Fernandez issued a decree uh, at the request of a bishop from the Philippines, again, saying Catholics are prohibited from joining Masonic associations. I reviewed what went on at that meeting, and it was shocking. Uh, Archbishop Stagliano's comments were laudatory of uh, this new approach to the Masonic teachings and all the rest. I'm glad he, he scaled back on it. But sad to say, why is it that every group which is hostile to the Catholic Church, such as the Communist Party or the Freemasons, they have this welcome mat thrown out at them saying, come on in, <laughs> let's try to figure out a way to get along. And meanwhile, people like the Latin Mass, this is constantly being restricted and you know, they're finding themselves to be orphans in their own parishes. There's a big contradiction yeah. going on here. Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. But, Bob, before we leave this topic, Stagliano, while seeming to affirm the church's ban on Freemasonry, he also used fiducia, the blessing of irregular couples, as an example of mercy that applies to all, even when it comes to Catholics previously excommunicated for being Masons. Is this more sort of the mixed messaging. Yeah, I would call this a kind of a sentimentality that thinks that dialogue is necessary with absolutely everybody and that there aren't stark differences. You know, when Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but a sword, do we ever, do we ever think about what he, he meant by that? I mean, there's a, a, diff, there's a real division that's going to take place of people who are going to follow him as people or, or as opposed to people who are going to follow something else. And I, I think it's useful for our American uh, viewers to realize that, that Freemasonry is not just a, a fraternal organization in Europe the way it, it seems to be here in the United States, like the Shriners or even like the Knights of Columbus. This, this has been a militantly atheist organization. And whatever, I don't know what possible dialogue they think that they can carry out with people who for, for years have been trying to destroy the church. And you, you can tell yourself that you, you need to dialogue with everyone, but there are actually people with whom you cannot dialogue. This well, is why sometimes me, there, there, there are hot wars in the world. Yeah, well, Bob, let me, let me give you an example of a group that there's no dialogue with, and that would be the traditional Latin mass community. Uh, in a recent column, the Archbishop of Chicago, Cardinal Blaise Supich, insisted that the celebration of the traditional Latin mass, as approved by the late Pope Benedict, quote, impoverishes the church. And this week we learned that Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster in London, banned the celebration of the old rite during the Eastern Tridium. Edward Penton also reports that Pope Francis has received, as we mentioned earlier, the Superior General of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter for private audience at the Vatican. Details of that meeting we don't have yet. Father, what do you make of all the animus toward this ancient Latin rite, given there are so many Eastern rites in the Catholic Church and other forms of liturgy that go untouched, and, and any, uh, you know, pagan group that comes in from the Amazon are treated as if, you know, Athanasius just walked in? 
Well, it's, again, unsatisfactory, to say the least. Uh, it's contradictory of the claims that are made constantly that inclusion uh, is the theme of our church. Uh, Pope said in Lisbon, all, everyone, 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 that's who the church is for. But then you turn around and bishops are uh, either on their own decision or, you know, pushed by Cardinal Roche at the Congregation for Divine Worship told, we're shutting down the Latin Mass in your parish. And it, it, it's, it's, again, lack of charity. We talk about this frequently. Now, what lies behind it is an interesting thing. Um, you know, if you live in a free market country, you realize uh, competition is good because it forces both sides to make the best product at the, at the cheapest price. Monopolies, on the other hand, uh, deprive people of the ability to follow the best product that they find on the market. And, mm. you know, we, we shouldn't say competition in the church doesn't mean when you have different varieties of worship styles. Uh, if everything is legitimate, it should all be permitted. So, I, I, again, charity is the keynote of Christ's life on earth. He taught the truth. He taught it in love. Why can't we show charity toward those that like the old mass and let them have it hmm. in their parish church? Bob, apparently, uh, you know, there was this dialogue with Freemason where we talked about, but, uh, you know, God help anyone who wishes for a reverent style of Catholic worship, particularly young people. Do you, do you see any awareness that by, by uh, issuing these edicts by fiat, you're repelling a whole new group of Catholics or people who are interested and fascinated by the mystery of ancient Catholic worship? Yeah, with all due respect to Cardinal Supic in Chicago, our previous pontiff said that the, the Latin Mass would, would, would lead to mutual enrichment, that there would be a... You want to talk about dialogue, there would be a dialogue between the ancient and, and what's modern. And you're quite mm -hmm. right that for some reason, and, and perhaps because of the, the thinness of contemporary culture, a lot of young people are yep. searching... And if they're not searching in Buddhism or yoga or mindfulness or whatever, they come upon the depth of, of, of and the riches, riches of the, the Latin liturgy, and it moves them. It, it moves them because God moves mm -hmm. human beings. So, yeah, I, I don't think that there's, there's much uh, consideration of that. And if I can put it this way, there's a certain rigidity in, in rejecting no. what could be an, an enriching element in the church, not an impoverishing element. Yeah, no, definitely a rigidity there in Rome and, 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 and a blindness and deafness to what clearly people want. So now you've got people packing into hospital chapels and hotel meeting rooms and ballrooms on Sundays. It's, it's ridiculous to expel them from a parish. Uh, three new consultors of the Synod on Synodality were announced this week. A sister, Bridget Wheeler, who's a professor of theology, Tricia Bruce, who's a president of the Association of the Sociology of Religion and a professor at Notre Dame, as well as Maria Clara Lucetti Bingemer. Now, she is a professor of theology from Rio de Janeiro. Here's what they all have in common. They all have expressed support for female ordination. Sister uh, Bridget Wheeler has said, I believe it must be possible for women who feel called to do so to be admitted to the priesthood. Uh, Father, and then Bob, these appointments show a full court press by the Vatican to keep this priest, deacon, ordination of women conversation alive at the Synod, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it's, 
you know, the old axiom in Washington, you know, personnel is policy. Uh, if you want to have a discussion on women's ordination, uh, you have to have people there who are going to defend Catholic truth and say the church has never done it because the church has never thought it could. Instead, we have this attitude of uh, we have to make all things new, meaning we have to take what was old and get rid of it and invent new things. Uh, did Jesus Christ know what he was doing all the time in every way? Absolutely. He did not choose any women to be his apostles. He did not name them the first bishops and priests of the, of church, of the church. And the apostles never uh, chose women to be among the first deacons. Uh, this is determinative. We believe this is all revealed by God. To treat it as an open discussion is another source of disunity in the church. This has been shut down by John Paul II and Benedict, but now it's been, you know, revivified. Now, I have to say, Pope Francis has said he doesn't believe in women priests on a number of right. occasions. Uh, but the follow-through is to say, okay, I, didn't, I don't believe it for the following reasons, therefore we're not going to keep talking about it. But that seems to be what's happening. Bob, this synod, this synod on synodality in October is going to be a barn burner. I mean, it, it, everything seems to be coming to a head and everything is up for grabs and on the table. Yeah, you know, it's very funny that that meeting that the Pope had with uh, his uh, Council of Cardinals, his advisors, uh, yeah. the same sort of thing uh, uh, cropped up just a few weeks ago. And now we, we see this. And yet when the people actually do meet together, even in those dinner tables, as I like to think of them. They're all sitting around as if they're at, at the prayer breakfast or something in, in, in Washington. Um, th these hot-button issues tend to get put aside. We, we thought that there was going to be an LGBT element in the final document that came out of last November's Synod, and of course that was just blocked by people who were doing the voting. And I think the same, same is here true, but there, there seems to be a desire to keep those pots boiling, even though when synod, real synodality is applied and people actually have a, a chance to express their opinions about them, they reject them. So, you know, we're in a, a, a synodality that's being run by people who are basically authoritarian. Yeah, well, as a, you know, to bring it all together, it sort of reflects what that memo, that anonymous memo by a cardinal and what Cardinal Pell had written before his death, which is this authoritarian push that is deaf to all comers and deaf to those in the church. Gentlemen, we will leave it there uh, for commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray. Uh, you can visit thecatholicthing.org. Thank you, gents. I sat down with Mel Gibson and Jim Caviezel on the set of The Passion during the editing and after the release of the landmark film. Here are some bits of our classic World Over interviews with Mel Gibson and Jim Caviezel. Mel, when you first started thinking about this movie, what was your first intention? What did you intend to do? To um, create an experience um, for an audience um, of the passion, as I, as I imagined it, as I saw it. Um, and uh, I used um, various source material, but mainly the Gospels, you know. Okay. And, uh, of course, um, other, other material like the uh, writings of Anne Catherine Emmerich, you know, to... Um, to fill it out. Now, what do you mean by that? Define how much well, the, the, the Gospels were the primary source, and Absolutely. what did you do with Emmerich? Um, it was just great for detail, and and very thought-provoking passages. This is the Dolores Passion. Yes, yeah, and um, so I I, um, I use that as a backdrop of reading, and uh, 
And she doesn't contradict the Gospels anywhere. She just, it's just detail, such detail. Uh, you don't have to believe any of it, but it's uh, interesting to um, uh, juxtapose it against the accepted uh, four testimonies. Talk to me for a second about why you decided to restrict yourself to the 12 hours before his death. Why not the ministry? Why not the resurrection? Well, for me, that's the most effective part is, is the sacrifice, the sacrificial aspect uh, of Christ. Um, and that's where it all comes to a head. And I think <clears throat> I've seen so many films where they do focus on those other areas. Um, and they, they get kind of long and drawn out. And I don't think that the renderings that I've seen, they're not very successful. They're Why usually not? pretty hokey. They got bad wigs and, uh, you know, really stilted acting. And, um, you know, the dialogue is like, you know, it's just, I don't know, it comes across as very stilted to me. And I never really bought any of it. I mean, it's like other renderings I've seen. And I'm not trying to, like, you know, tear strips off anyone. I'm just telling the truth here. They bore the hell out of me. And it's like, uh, uh, it's like looking at the story through the wrong end of a telescope. It's like far away. It's as if it isn't real. It's like it's a fairy tale or something. And I wanted to um, accentuate the reality and have it not be a fairy tale, but have it be real, and uh, as I believe that it is and was. This gestated within you for a good long time, 13 oh, yeah. years or so. For a long time, yeah. Give me the backdrop on that. I, w I was um, focused on the passion for a long time. It was my own personal meditation. And uh, I focused on that because I found it healing for me. Because, like most of us, I mean, you get to a point in your life where you're pretty wounded by everything that goes on around you. Mm. By, by, uh, by your own transgressions, by other people's, you know, I mean, just life is a, it's a kind of a, a scarring uh, thing. So I used the, uh, uh, the passion as a meditation of healing myself. And that's what, that's what first drew you to the project, and, the, uh, yeah. and wanting to focus on that aspect of Christ's life. Yes. Okay, you see. Yes, it's, I'm curious about it, too. I mean, like, what is it? What is it? I mean, you, you hear about it, you read about it. It is the central theme of, of uh, the faith of Christians. I mean, I, I wanted to find out about it in a, in a complete way, in a full way, and I began to read and, and uh, investigate. No studio would attach itself to this project when you first started shopping it around. No. Why not? I don't think it's... And I'm not sure. Well, they're scared of this material. The material? Or was it the language? What do you think it was? Well, they didn't like the idea that, it was, uh, that I was going to do it in, um, uh, in dead languages. Um, that puts them off right there. I mean, you know, people would say, well, why don't you do it in English? We'll back it. And I said, well, no, I don't want to. Um, it bothered me that it was... Uh, it would have bothered me if it was in some sort of vernacular. When did you make the decision that it was going to absolutely be in Aramaic and Latin? Oh, very early on. It was, there was no other way to do it for me. Um, I just, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to transcend language, you know. For the authenticity. You wanted to capture the authenticity of that moment. Authenticity is a good word, yes. I suppose that's about as close as we're going to come. I just wanted it to be something else. Um, and that I didn't want to have to depend on the spoken word. I mean, it's a visual art mm -hmm. film, and I wanted to take the verb away from it a little bit. Have it there, yeah, but um, to, um, to restrict the spoken word.
you were more interested, it seems to me, in the visceral, you wanted a visceral reaction from the audience and you didn't want the words getting in the way. That's right, yes. Then why did you put the subtitles in? Ah, because they were very helpful. How so? Well, when I watched it back, I said, hmm, it needs a little help. I showed it with subtitles and without, and with, and with it was very effective. Uh, it was just really effective. And you said this was a career killer, this movie. This, it and is. And you've put your own money and your reputation on the line. Why do yeah, sure. that? Because I'm passionate about it. And because that's what art is. And that's what, and that's what um, making art is about. It's about sort of throwing it all out there. I think, um, um, and if the fur is not flying, you ain't doing nothing. I remember when you first came back from Matera, Matera, Italy. Tell me about your first trip there. Because you were... You were kind of strapped for location. You were dying to find a location, and it wasn't happening. Yeah, we went to um, North Africa and all the usual hangouts <laughs> where, the, you know, where the locals get you, and they say, here it is, here's the, you know, and they take you to these places, and you say, I've seen that before. But uh, um, I, hadn't, I had seen Matera before because uh, I think Pasolini put it in his film. Uh, but he didn't use it to its fullest advantage. What did you find there? Uh, a great location. I mean, it was, like, rich. Um, and and we looked at it so many times, and remapped it, and walked it, and looked at it, and had old cameras on it. And I, I, I did a lot of location scouts there. It's a beautiful town. It's like two thousand years old, and and many of the uh, uh, the, the lower levels are two thousand years old, and uh, the the upper levels are are like caves, kind of hewn out in the rock by. Um, uh, by hermits, by monks from the east, you know, they came and they settled there and they dug these caves and they did what's called reverse architecture and they dug out the stone and they, what they left in there were altars where they used to celebrate. So when you're looking at the, the hill that uh, we used for Calvary and the crucifixions, uh, underneath are chapels where, where the sacrifice was actually celebrated for years, right underneath the, the areas. Um, and there, there's still altars and frescoes there painted on the walls. Really? From, yeah, from these old hermits that lived in there. The Ermiti, they called them. Talk to me about the cinematography, which you were looking for there, the, 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 the composition of the images themselves. You, when we were in Rome, you mentioned Caravaggio, that that was an influence. Why? Well, you know, as one looks at uh, great art, um, I don't know, it just... He, in particular, sometimes it was almost startlingly real, and it was always kinetic. It was always as if it was in motion for me, and it was violent, too. It was, um, uh, you know, you're always seeing somebody yeah. getting their head cut off or... Right, or in chains or dragged or... Yeah, and, I mean, the only way we know anything... Caravaggio did all this amazing religious art. I mean, if you go around the churches in Rome, there it is. It's everywhere in the, in the cathedrals, and it's tremendous, and he's kind of my favorite, but he's pretty dark... And pretty um, uh, and pretty violent, and it it is kinetic, and the way it's lit, the way his sense of light in his um, um, in his imagination when he did these pictures is just it's amazing. It's like uh, beautiful. Um, so we emulated that where we could. Your vision of Jesus is is really at odds with the history, the cinematic tradition of depicting this man. Sure. Describe for me your Jesus, the way you saw him. The way I saw him? As a man born at that time into that culture. Um, and just as, 
as as real as possible, you know. He always has an effete air yes. in some of these other movies. Well, you yes. didn't want that. No, I didn't want him to be. I think he was he was a workman. He was a, you know. But but how do you capture the divinity? In in that, and I think that's why you get that femininity in the in the in the acting because they're trying to capture the divinity. Yeah. How did you avoid that? And why did you cast Caviezel? Caviezel? Well, he's a very masculine kind of guy. But there is something otherworldly about Jim. He's not quite with us, Jim. He's like he's got some other un, other world or unworldly knowledge that seems to um, envelop him like a glow. And um, that very presence, I thought, was a, a key thing. His casting in that is somebody who emits that kind of light, and he has a very good light coming out of him. Um, but that's just natural to Jim, and that's who he is. You know. Hardest film of your career? Without a doubt. In what way? Uh, physically, there's no rest. In The Thin Red Line, which was very hard, uncomfortable, uh, you know, there are moments where you walk around and Terry Malick would say, go over there and pick your gun up and look into the sunset. Physically, not so hard. This one is torture from the from right from the beginning in all forms. If I'm on the cross, uh, you're in incredibly cold conditions. Yeah, tell me about that. Fifteen days in a loincloth, essentially, in the freezing cold. Well, just well, that's just on the crucifix, and we that that's just straight crucifix. We um, did uh, two weeks this last week, ten days of of getting on the cross. Mm. So we had to shoot all that on a, uh, a set here at Chinichita in Rome. And the other part was down in Matera, and that was a, um, on a, a, a cliff. And, you know, I, I've said, go put yourself across on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and uh, the wind tunnel from the canyon just goes straight up that. We're on kind of like a, the sheer a cake. Side. Yeah. And just comes up and right over. Um, they will stick heaters on both sides of you, but it's useless when the wind is uh, just blowing past you. And when you're looking out at the and the in the distance, and, you know, there are you know a good 300 people there, and you see them shaking, and they've got mittens and scarves and, and jackets on. It. I, I just uh, it, and there's nothing you can do because your arms are tied up. So they move the heaters closer, and you'll start to feel the heat. But when the Wind slows down just a little bit. It fries your um, skin. Toasted tootsies. <laughs> so it, it, it uh, uh, I, I remember just going, so you don't want this movie to be made. <laughs> uh, you pulled your I shoulder, mean, too. Continually. Uh, separated my shoulder. Doing I, what? Carrying, when you were carrying the cross? Yeah, the, when, when you're carrying the cross, um, it's actual, it's not just the beam. The, the, the Gasmus and Dismus, the two criminals... Right are both carrying a beam. And some theologians feel that he carried the whole darn thing, and um, which would made his passion a little bit different than anyone else's. Um, so Mel took you know, pleasure in making that thing heavy. You couldn't make it too light, or it just wouldn't look right. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I, I, I played basketball for years, and I bring that up because um, I, I, I just found it real important to do a lot of, um, you know, clean jerks, lunges, uh, deadlifts, and um, and do wall squats. And I couldn't have done it without it because uh, literally 
you're putting all the weight when you're on the cross, you're putting mm -hmm. all the weight on this leg and hooking this one over. And so all your weight goes into your uh, right quad and you have to hold that for 10 minutes while your arms are, you know, hooked up. And what, how did they hook you up? Um, well, they, uh, there's a number of different, different ways. Uh, are you saying like when I'm... Yeah, physically, how are you being held up? I mean, I, I imagine they're not driving nails through your hands. He hasn't gone that far, has he? It, well, I mean, we can do a lot of things with special effects with, you know, digital and which this film is on. Um, but uh, we have a really extraordinary makeup crew, and one of the best in the, in the, the best in the business. And, uh, um, I mean, some of it I don't even go into because I just think it's, it takes away from the mystery of the film, mm -hmm. um, of what we're doing. They've built two sorts of platforms, and um, in between takes, I would uh, uh, I'd have to I have to stay up there for most of the time, and they would just put the heaters on and try to you know keep keep me warm, um, because taking me off would take too long to, for the for the for the, for the setups. And so at one point I was on there for uh, uh, like an hour, and this is in you know uh, if you've known what wind chill feels like, this was you know. 20 degree weather, nothing wrong. Yeah, with but windshield, you know, which drops the wind and, and or drops the temperature, and you most of the time it's just keeping your core temperature up, and switching from heat to cold and heat to cold that that fast, I couldn't keep anything down, so it was extremely hard to getting nauseous all the time, and and you're also um, because the makeup is so severe, you can't see out the right, I can't see the right side of mm -hmm. my face, mm -hmm. so everything's you know, you're getting hyper-focused out of the left eye. And, mm. it's, and then the makeup that you're wearing is all the skin is just ripped to shreds. So <laughs> if you've, all I can say is if you've ever had a sunburn, when you're going through the healing stage and you're itching, <laughs> put your arms up and want to itch every single part of your body, and, and you can't. And it's just, it's, so it's been a nightmare the whole, mm. whole, whole way through. And some nights I have to wear the entire makeup in bed so they throw powder over me, and I go to bed wearing stuff, and and I just don't sleep. Um, you, you itch all night. So why did you decide to do this film? How did it happen? Go back there and tell me how Mel Gibson decided to. You can turn your cameras off anytime you want once you get poor. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to turn. This is what they tuned in for. <laughs> the um, uh, it's all started with. Um, uh, I had a phone call from my agent saying that Steve McAvity, um, Mel Gibson's partner, wanted to meet with me on a film called Mavericks. What I later found from Steve and, and uh, Mel was that was just a front. <laughs> <laughs> a ploy to get a ploy, you in the room. Well, to see what I was really like. Mm -hmm. So um, we uh, <clears throat> met at some picnic table and, and uh, up in Malibu, and we... Uh, uh, started talking and uh, uh, we, it went on for like three and a half hours and then uh, Mel finally brings up this story about this what he's been thinking about for many years and uh, <coughs> how he had uh, found this book and it was Anne Catherine Emmerich and he goes you don't you know how this guy really died I said yeah and he started we and I just it hit me I just said you want me to play Jesus I just interrupted him. He, he stopped and he looked at me. He goes, "Yeah, 
<laughs> I said, okay. And in that moment, you know, you can slow the thoughts down in your head a million miles a second. And I kept thinking, oh, man, it all comes down to this, you know, playing this. And it felt like I should. And I, and, and I said, okay. But I, I was scared in saying it. You were offered four other times to play this role, right? Three other times. This is the fourth time. Why this one? Why this one and not the others? It, you know, I, the other times that I was asked, I've, afterwards I felt guilty. I felt like my first response was right and, and I just didn't feel right. I didn't want to make something that wasn't the truth. And I felt that the other ones weren't, uh, weren't there. And it, it, it hadn't... It, I wanted to know. I asked Mel, I said, Mel, you had a lot of passion when you did Braveheart. Do you have at least that much for this? He goes, more than anything I've ever done. I mean, I have a sense you're going to go through the blades a few times on this one. You think so? I bet. Julianne diced? Yes. Ginsued? Ginsued, chopped, and fricasseed. Fricasseed, oh, good. I can hardly wait. If what, I, if what I'm hearing from my peers is true. Shut up. I know, You're I know. scaring I, you, Raymond. I'm not trying to scare you. I just want to... All right. Oh, you know, hey, so what? You only live once. You're willing to take the shot. Yeah, you might as well get... It, it won't be boring. No, it won't be boring. It won't be boring. <laughs> and it hasn't been boring. But uh, as you see there, and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've said this time and time again when people have asked me, I don't think he anticipated anything like this fallout. And the, and the enormous criticism that, that flew at this film mm -hmm. for a year. Mm -hmm. You were front page news for a year. Yeah. What did you think when that happened? Uh, well, uh, do my job very well. I, at that point, I didn't want him worrying about me as an actor. I had to come and bring my A game every day, my A plus game. Mm -hmm. um, and you're dying. Well, you all have the flu in that clip. Mel has he the was flu. Sick. He's sick he as was a dog. Sick. Um, and whatever he got, I got. And I got, prop gave to him. But... Um, you know, that's when friendship. You, <laughs> that's friendship. <laughs> when, you, when you're uh, trying to direct a film, um, try to. Uh, it's like fighting two wars, two fronts. Mm -hmm. That's what was mm -hmm. happening, and mm -hmm. it was uh, it was diverting his focus. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I would go in and, and say, "Don't worry about me. Just whatever you have to do, I'll be fine. But don't concern yourself with me. I'm okay. Just you know, do the best you can here." What do you make of their charge? But then they say, <laughs> the, it, this movie could serve as a toxic recipe for religious hatred, could legitimize anti-Semitism. Will it? No. This is rubbish. This is absolute rubbish. This film is about faith, hope, love, and forgiveness. That's what it's about. Does this film attempt to collectively blame the death of Jesus on the Jewish people? This film collectively blames humanity on the death of Jesus. Now, there are no exemptions there. All right? I'm first on the line for culpability. I did it. Christ died for all men, for all times. Including Jewish people. Yeah. I, I, they're part of the human race, you know? And it's humanity that's culpable. I'm first on the line. I did it, okay? Um, we are all culpable, with no exemptions. No exceptions. So it's not singling them out and say, they did it. That's not so. We're all culpable. I believe we're all culpable. In fact, there's an argument, and this is a, a valid one. I think it's in the Council of uh, the Catechism of Trent that says, 
We're more culpable, in fact, because we know, and if we reject and by our transgressions crucify Christ, we are um, more responsible than those who may have been ignorant, who thought, well, he's not really the Messiah. He's like, a, you know. And artistically, you point the finger at yourself, don't oh, you? Oh, absolutely. That's my hand in there, sort of pounding the nail in. Um, left hand, sinistra, uh, okay. the sinister hand. Do you think the real gripe here is with the Gospels? That's all. That's all I got there is the Gospels. That's all it is. Now, they did a film called The Gospel According to John, but they didn't come under fire. Why? Why are they not under fire, and why am I under fire? I've only done what they've done. Because Mel Gibson didn't direct that picture. That's right. It's a very personal thing. Is this your most... People might go and see this. Oh, no! That's the whole thing. Is this your most personal film, in yes, your it is. opinion? Yeah. It reflects my beliefs. And I've never done that before. Why not? because I haven't had the opportunity to do it before. You think you'll do it again after what you've gone through on this? This? Yeah, why not? <laughs> I'm winning. <laughs> is this, they have no idea what stubborn means. Is this theme going to continue? You've been grappling with this good and evil, these, the big picture, the spiritual war, if you will. Braveheart, we were soldiers, signs, all of these, I would say, in some to ways... To a degree, yeah. yeah. Give us glimpses of that inner struggle. You think this will continue for you as a filmmaker? I don't know. Probably. You know, you have to, you have to talk about what you know about. I don't know about it. I'm no expert. But, uh, you know, you can only um, put your own experience into your work. How that manifests itself, I have no way of knowing in the future. I don't know if I'll ever work again. You know, I've said that this is a career killer. Yeah. And it, it could well be. But that doesn't matter, because I don't care. Because this is more important, this message, yeah. this film. I think so, yeah. And it's, um, I'll, you know, put it out there, see what happens. What do you want people to come away with after seeing this movie? What do you want from your audience? To be affected by it, to believe it. Mm. Of course, they don't have to do any of those things. It's up to them. I want them to be moved by it, and I want them to think about it. Um, maybe to be inspired to read the rest of the Gospels because it's a good book anyway. Uh, my intention was to get back to the basic message, you know, and show there it is. What does that do to you? Do you think you've done it? Yeah, I, th I think I have. Gibson is said to be working on a sequel to his passion film. We will, of course, keep you posted on any news that emerges. <laughs> Meanwhile, Cardinal Raymond Burke is calling on Catholics, especially those in the Americas, to join him in a spiritual renewal, a novena with a very special purpose. Cardinal Burke is leading a novena culminating in an act of consecration on December 12th. Listen. This March, I am beginning a nine-month novena imploring the intercession of Our Lady of Guadalupe against the pressing crises of our age. This novena will culminate in a consecration to Our Lady of Guadalupe on her feast day in December. I ask you please to join me in this urgent return to Our Lady. More information on the novena can be found at novena.cardinalburke.com. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to join us next week. Until then, 
will be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now. Thank <laughs> you.